So as Greg said, the last three weeks we've been talking about the antidote to idolatry. Greg talked about the up one. We burned some of our idols in a fire outside this window. We talked last week about the in one, and we spent five minutes in silence. Today, guess what? It's about the out one, and I get to talk about being out, the antidote to idolatry. Let's pray before we get started. Good idea? Let's do that. Lord, we want to hear from you, not from a preacher. We want to hear from your spirit. We want to get a word from our God this morning. So we trust that you will translate, Holy Spirit, the words coming from this broken and weak preacher, and that you'd make them alive and very pointed for each one of us. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So one of our favorite church advertisements in the world is this one here. Check it out. We're saving a seat for you. Look at this. Go to the next one here. We got more of them. If you go online, you can find thousands of these. We're saving a seat for you signs. Now, there's nothing wrong with saving a seat for people. We got plenty of seats here. We'd love to see them all filled with people. That'd be awesome. But it's interesting to me because the church often says, we don't want to measure our success on what's happening just on Sunday morning on the people that are sitting in the seats. We want to measure our success on something else. We'd rather measure our success on you know, our impact in the world. Yet our battle cry is, we're saving a seat for you. Come sit with us. Come gather with us. Come take up your seat somewhere. My friend Kevin Harney is a pastor in California. He wrote a book called Organic Outreach. He was leading a seminar with a bunch of pastors. And he was talking about the fact that they needed to keep outreach front and center every 30 days in their church or it would totally disappear. One of the pastors raised his hand and said, how are we supposed to do that? There's so many other things going on. How are we supposed to get this outreach thing front and center? That's crazy. Harney said to them, okay, let me ask you a couple questions. If we didn't worship for a week, how long would it take before people started screaming? And of course, the pastor said, oh, one week we'd have people screaming. They'd be banging on the door. They'd be, what's happening to our church? Then he said, what if we didn't do like spiritual formation, small groups or, you know, all the stuff we do with kids? What if we stopped doing that for a couple weeks? How long would it take? The pastors estimated it would take three weeks before people started screaming about that. Then he said, what if we'd stopped doing outreach altogether, just didn't do any more outreach? How long would it take for people to complain? The same pastor that asked the question raised his hand and said, it's been 10 years and counting. Because think about it, folks. If we don't reach out to the world, nobody out there is going to complain. We'll just become irrelevant Right? People will just go, well, there's a church on the corner. I know those people sitting there in their seats and they do something. But I don't know, they don't really matter in my life in any way. When you think about Jesus, he called his disciples to an active walk. He said, follow me, follow my example. Right? He wanted people to live in the same way he lived. So instead of we're saving a seat for you, maybe we should have a sign, we're saving a towel for you. Come wash some feet with us. Or we're saving a kid for you to mentor. Come hang out with a kid. Or we're saving, I don't know, some people in the community that need us to serve them with our hands and feet. Come join us in changing the world. That would be a more compelling, I don't know, advertisement for church, in my opinion. Now, today's story, if you heard it read, I wanted you to hear it read because it's a really dramatic story. And it's got some demons in it and stuff. And so Mark 5, we're going to go there. Here's, here's where it starts in Mark 4. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, he took him along just as he was in the boat. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. I want to show you a map here. 
a map of the Sea of Galilee. There's the Sea of Galilee, and you can see the cities of Chorazin, Capernaum, and Bethsaida. That's known as the Jewish Triangle. 85 to 90 percent of the gospel stories happen in that triangle. Seriously, 85 to 90 percent. Okay, so that's where the Jewish people live that are really dialed into following the law and to really trying to reverse this trend in the Jewish faith where people have kind of gone haywire. So they're super into the law, lots of Pharisees there working on this. Jesus did a lot of his ministry. A lot of Jesus' disciples are from that, that triangle there. The people who lived in the triangle didn't even want to talk about the other side. The other side is where the city of Hippos is. That is a region that is Greek in nature. It's east of the Sea of Galilee. There are 10 cities there that Alexander the Great built. And it's believed by the Jewish people that the people that live there are the seven nations that were cast out of the land of Israel when they conquered the land. They ended up there. So the Jewish people think of Hippos and the 10 cities over there as really pagan. In fact, if you even mention Decapolis on your lips, you were considered unclean for seven days. So not only did you not go there, you never even talked about there. That was the other side of the lake where the evil pagans resided. So what does Jesus say? We're going to go to the other side. Can you imagine these disciples? He's like, they're like, what? We're doing what? We're going the other side? We're going the other side? That, you mean over there to Hippos? We're going there? That's crazy. Jesus takes his disciples to the outcasts, to the pagan places, on purpose. On purpose. He goes to where people that are lost are on purpose. He wants them to learn how to be on the mission of God. You can't be on the mission of God if the only people you know are people that think and believe like you do. The only way to get on the mission of God is to get involved on the other side with people that don't believe like you do. Mike Breen says it this way. If we simply stay in our safe zones, our church, our small group, our Christian subculture, we will not be where the lost are. We have to leave our comfortable settings and get out where there are people who do not yet know that God loves them so much that he cannot stop thinking about them. We must have an outward relational dimension in our lives that draws others in. Now you might be wondering, how in the world, Klein, is moving outward, how is that an antidote to, to idolatry? Why is it an antidote? What's it going to do for me if I go get involved in some of these people, these outcasts, these, these places on purpose? Well, I can tell you what's going to happen. Idolatry is primarily a turning of your heart away from God. It's turning to other things to rely on those things instead of God. So I'll give you an example of how God feels. If my wife walked in here this morning and she needed a hug and she was looking for Pastor Greg to give her a hug, we'd have a problem, wouldn't we? Yeah, I'd be like, what's going on? What do you mean you're going to Pastor Greg for a hug? You get a, I'm your husband, let's go. I'd be jealous for my wife's attention. I want her to turn to me, not to Pastor Greg. Well, God feels the same way. God's up in heaven going, hey, turn to me. Look to me. I'll meet your needs. Trust in me. When you move out, when you go to the lands of the outcasts, the places that are not fully comfortable, guess what happens? You turn to God. Yeah, you're totally like, man, this is out of my comfort zone. This is out of my realm. I can't do this. And you turn to God and you rely on him because you know that the only way you can change the world is through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So the reason it's an antidote to idolatry is because when you move out, you encounter the power and presence of Jesus in moving out. So I was at camp in California earlier this summer. One of the counselors, this is how he said his name, his name was Ryan. Ryan the Dutch farmer from the Central Valley of California. Ryan was a giant man. He could have snapped me in half, seriously. This guy had huge arms. He was just a huge guy. So Ryan came as a counselor. Now, the thing is about Ryan, he wasn't coming to the outcast. He was coming to the kids from his Central Valley area who were coming to camp, and he was going to be one of their counselors. So he, he was going to have a cabin of boys to take care of for the week. So Ryan's going through the week. I'm talking with him. And the last night, I gave everyone this assignment. I said, okay, I want every one of you counselors, I want every kid before they leave this camp to be prayed over and anointed with oil. So I want you counselors to lead this. Well, this was way out of Ryan's comfort zone. This is not something he normally did at his church, but he, he went along with it. He got in his group. I was watching his group, and each kid in the middle, and they're laying their hands on the kids, and they're anointing with oil, and they're praying over each kid. Now, the instruction I did not give, I did not say to the kids, and then you pray for your counselor. But Ryan's cabin said, Ryan, you get in the middle. We're praying for you. And the kids anointed Ryan with oil, and they prayed over Ryan. Ryan came to me two minutes after that session was over, tears streaming down his face. He said, Klein, I did not want to come be a counselor at this camp. I fought it like crazy. It's way out of my comfort zone. I did not want to do this. But I've never experienced the power and the presence of Jesus like just happened when my kids prayed for me. This is what's waiting for you if you decide to jump out and get going on the mission of God. The power and presence of Jesus will join you on the journey. And you'll experience his power and presence alongside you as you go. So let's keep going in the story. Here's Mark 2, Mark 5, 2 through 5. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night, he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. Now, this is... This is just what the disciples expected. We go to the pagan areas, what happens? We meet a demon-possessed guy. They're like, what the heck, Jesus, what are you thinking? You lead us over here? Now, of course, it's coming out. I love this, too. A lot of scholars point out that it says when Jesus got on the boat, it doesn't say the disciples got on the boat. They were still on the boat. They didn't want to go on the, out on the other side. So they were just sitting in the boat watching. Jesus gets out, and, of course, he confronts this demon-possessed guy. Now, this guy is the outcast of outcasts. Think about it. Nobody wanted anything to do with this guy. If you met this guy in the streets of Chicago, would you be like, oh, let's have this go for dinner? No, you'd be like, oh, this, this guy's nuts. So even his own pagan area had kicked him out and chained him in the tombs to get rid of him. They want nothing to do with him. I love that Jesus goes to this guy. We don't know how he became demonized like this. It doesn't tell us. The cities where he lived were majorly full of idol worship. So who knows what influenced him? There's some crazy practices that were going on in these cities. And now, you know, if you think about it, in our world, we don't think about demons very much, do we? We kind of write those off. Like, demons? Yeah, whatever. They're, they're around, I guess, but we don't really, you know, we kind of disregard them. Right? We don't really know if we believe in these. Paul said this about demons. Ephesians 6, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What's Paul talking about? Well, our world's at war. There's an invisible world all around us. You know, many of us this morning have carried our demons in with us. Yeah, I'm not saying you're demon-possessed. I'm just saying that the enemy has influenced you to make choices this week that would not lead to life, but would lead to darkness and chaos. We've all done it. We've all listened to the little voice, and we've all taken a little step toward the dark side. Yeah, toward the outcast side. Sky Jathani says it this way, The writers of the New Testament do not present the world as a neutral space or empty stage onto which Jesus appeared to inaugurate his kingdom. Instead, they view the world as occupied by hostile forces who have enslaved and corrupted humanity. And they present Jesus' arrival as a conquest of liberation to drive out his enemies and set his creation free. Simply put, the Bible presents the world as a field of battle, not a blank canvas. So Jesus enters the battle on this shoreline. This guy meets him. You heard the story, right? The, the demons start talking to him because they know who he is. And they beg him, don't send us into the abyss, Jesus. Send us to the pigs. Well, it's sort of funny because the Sea of Galilee for the Jews was represented the abyss. They thought of the sea, the deep sea, as a place where the abyss was, where, where chaos in, uh, existed. So when Jesus sends these, these demons into the pigs and they run into the sea... It's like, oh, he's kind of playing a little joke on them. They're heading to the abyss anyway. Right? Now, we can feel badly for the pigs, but he's also sending a little message to the Romans. Right in this region was the 10th Roman legion. You know what their symbol on their shield was? A boar, a pig. So he's sending a message that he is the one in authority. He's establishing his kingdom right here, tangibly demonstrating it, so the deliverance of this crazy man in the tombs, this guy who's possessed by demons, he delivers them, and it, it blows people away. So check this out, Mark 5. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind. Look at their reaction. They're afraid. They tell Jesus, hey, can you get out of here, please? We're doing good without you. We don't need your nonsense here. Take your stuff somewhere else. We don't really want this around here. Now, let me just pause here and tell you this. You will never be able to move out in the power and presence of Jesus unless you yourself have first had an encounter with the power and presence of Jesus. So if you want to go out in the world with the power and presence of Jesus, but you've never yourself been delivered by the power and presence of Jesus, it's going to be really hard for you to go out and do things in the power and presence of Jesus. All of us come here needing to meet this Jesus and have him deliver us. This is just true. From the pastors to the littlest kid, we all need to be delivered. And when you have that story of being delivered, it's powerful. So I'm going to introduce you to a new member here. Chad McQuaid is going to come up. Um, Chad and I have gotten to know each other. I would say he's a friend. I don't know if he called me his friend, but I call him my friend. <laughs> and uh, I, I asked Chad to come up this morning because I wanted him to tell you about his encounter with Jesus. So, Chad, can you take us back into your story? Sure. Good morning, everybody. Um, rule number one, don't share too much at your men's group. Right? <laughs> you end up 
on stage in front of a lot of people. Uh, so back when I was coming out of undergraduate at Miami of Ohio, I had had my life figured out. I was 22, I was headed to law school, and I knew exactly what I wanted to do with my life. And so I arrive at law school first, first semester, you get to start interviewing for uh, summer internships. And um, so I interviewed and they had only seen my undergrad grades, which were amazing. And I was so dialed in as a college kid, I, I studied quite a bit and was a really good student. And uh, so based on those grades in my interview, I got this offer to um, join for an internship, the, the most, probably one of the most prestigious law firms globally. They happened to have an office in Cleveland, but it was a New York-based law firm. And so they said, it's your, it's your, you know, it's your internship. You're the only one who's getting it from Ohio State Law School. I wasn't going to Harvard, so they didn't choose a lot of OSU grads uh, for this opportunity. So long story short, um, now I'm dialed in all semester, and literally, you know, this offer of this opportunity defined who I was. It became my center, my only focus for the entire semester. I made no friends, no outreach, stopped going to church. I was literally in the library from the time it opened till the time it closed unless I was in class for an entire semester. And so during that time, um, I really strayed away from my faith. And um, in law school, I don't know if you know this, but you only get one set of grades. So you get, uh, you get a final exam, and that's it. And so studied, 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 took all my finals, and um, you don't get your grades till mid-February. So no grades, mid-February, I get, I get my, uh, my grades, and I've never had a C in my life. I got a C in contracts. And uh, I had to turn these grades into this law firm. And, you know, the whole semester, everybody's talking about where they're going to intern and, oh, McQuaid, you've got this incredible opportunity. And, and it really became the definition of who I was. And so I sent the grades into the law firm and they rescinded my offer. And I was absolutely devastated. And during that time, you know, none of my friends from undergraduate were with me. I was away from my family. Um, it was just a very lonely time for me, and um, I literally became physically and mentally ill. Uh, my anxiety was through the roof. Um, I had an ulcer, and I remember sitting in class a couple days after I got my grade card or my first set of grades, and the gal next to me nudged me and she said, "Are you okay?" And it turned out that my entire body was broken out in hives. I literally had a rash on top of my entire body. And so I was just in an awful spot. But of course, I was, in the, I was still in the library. Uh, that, that, I believe it was that evening or maybe the next evening. And a gentleman approached me by the name of Harvey McCleskey. And Harvey and I, um, I didn't even know him. I, he was in classes with me, but there were... 210 students in my class, and he just came up to me and said, hey man, are you okay? And I said, 
not really. And so he sat down and just kind of listened to me, and I, sh I just kind of dumped everything on him that was going on in my life. Everything that I had planned for my life had kind of come crashing down because my identity was in this, this career that I was going to have and this, this journey uh, for being a lawyer at this super prestigious law firm. And he said, uh, why don't you come with me? So he took me out to, to dinner, and then we end up at church. I believe it was a Wednesday night service at a, a Baptist church. And uh, it was in downtown Columbus. I was the only white guy in the place. <laughs> um, she didn't stand out at all. I didn't stand out at all. And this um, preacher gave an incredible uh, sermon, and um, it just really spoke to me. And it was literally what I needed to hear. It was about not having your identity in things of this world, but, you know, having, having your identity with, with Jesus. And I grew up in the church, but I had never had this type of encounter, and I'd never given my faith to the Lord, um, although we were churchgoers and always volunteered and all those things. So what happened, Chad? Did they invite you down front? They did. So he, the, the pastor just said, hey, if anybody feels a calling to come down and give themselves to the Lord, do. And I, I didn't even really think much about it. I just, uh, it, something moved me inside to, to go up and, and give, my, give, my, give my life to Christ uh, that night. It was an unbelievable experience. You know, it was this weight coming off my shoulders. Um, and literally within a couple of weeks, my physical and mental challenges were, were gone. And I actually got better grades, too. All right. Um, but no, it was, it, was, it was an incredible experience. Um, so no, no demons went into the pigs, but no, no. something happened that was pretty crazy. Yeah, I actually texted Harvey this morning and told him I was going to be up here today. So <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thanks, man. Yep. Thank you. Thanks for coming up. You know, when I was in Colorado, I met a woman named Veronica. She was one of the leaders there, and she told me that she had no interest in church or Jesus or anything like that. And uh, one of her coworkers at the bank kept asking her to church. And she said, this woman was driving me crazy. She just kept asking me to church. I, I'd go home and tell my husband, we got to go to church so I can get this lady off my back. She's driving me nuts. So finally, I'm not sure this is the best approach for evangelism. I'm not really uh, saying this is the way to go. But it was crazy. So she said, we went to church to get this lady off my back. And the very first service, Jesus ran us over. We turned our lives over to Jesus and everything was changed. And then she said, three years later, my husband was killed in a motorcycle accident. And I know I'll see him again because he's in heaven and knows Jesus. Whoa. Whoa. Now the final scene of the story is super compelling. Here we go. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, nope. Go home to your family. Tell them everything the Lord has done for you, how merciful he has been. So the man started off to visit the ten towns, the decapolis of that region, and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he had told them. Now, I love this. Jesus wants to go, this guy wants to go with Jesus, of course. But Jesus said, nope. I want you to go into your town, tell your family, tell your friends what the Lord has done for you. 
I don't think this guy's ever been discipled. I don't think he's ever been in evangelism training class. I don't think he's ever read a Bible. I don't think he's ever heard a sermon. I don't think he's ever been to church. I would say he's totally unprepared for this job, don't you think? And yet Jesus sends him right away, and he becomes the most unlikely missionary to the most pagan area of the time by going there and simply telling his story. Now, most of you would tell me, oh, man, I can never do all this outreach stuff, Klein, all this talking about Jesus. Well, you know what? You just saw Chad. He just told his story. It's compelling. No one can argue with your story. It's your story. So do you have a story of how Jesus delivered you? Can you tell your story? You can practice on somebody in here. And then you can go out there and you can tell your story, just like this guy did. He just told his story. And the question is, was he successful? Well, Jesus only went to this region two times in the Gospels. Once in the story we're reading right now. And if you keep reading in Mark, a couple chapters later, Jesus shows back up there. Check this out. And Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of the Decapolis. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Now, wait a minute. Remember these people that were saying, get away from us, Jesus. Don't come back here. We're afraid of you. And now he comes on shore. Thousands of people show up. He feeds 4,000 people on the hillside from the Decapolis. How did this happen? Well, this guy's telling a story. And everyone's like, I want to check this out. Do you know if you study the history of Hippus, the city of Hippus, archaeologists have dug there. They found seven churches. They found evidence for more. They found a cathedral, which is, by the way, the home of a bishop. The bishop of Hippus is recorded in history as the one who wrote down the Nicene Creed, which we say today in our churches. Why did all this happen? Because one demon-possessed, unprepared, unlikely missionary that Jesus sent to tell his story changed a whole region. That's pretty sweet. Now, my dream is that each of us who start to tell our story and invite people to come see what Jesus is doing here. Invite people to an alpha group. Come walk alongside them. Be with them on the journey. You don't have to say anything. The alpha people will say it all for you. You just have to show up and walk alongside the people. It's awesome. My dream here is that we could say that during this time in Elmer's church, we were so engaged in telling our story that the Lord did amazing things to change this region through the people of Elmer's church. It could be you that he's going to use. It could be your story. Will you get out there and tell it? All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for your example. Thank you for the way that you went to the other side. Lord, move us through your spirit to go to the other side, to be willing to be the power and presence of Jesus in the communities in which we live and work and play. In your name, Jesus, we pray.